Welcome to the Wildscast. On this episode, in anticipation of the Passover holiday, Rabbi Wilds shares some tips on having a meaningful and powerful Seder experience. Okay, welcome. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, an honor and a pleasure to have you join us for 10 insights and tips for your Seder. I am very, very excited about uh, sharing some ideas with you this afternoon that can help you and your family have a much more enlightened and exciting Seder. I'm coming to you live from Los Scott Shapiro, with everyone else that's joining. I'm coming to you live from the MGE offices, from my office, and I'm excited to be able to share these ideas with you. Uh, let me see by show of hands if you can hear me okay. I'm using my my uh, my AirPods. I called them AirPods yesterday, and my kids got upset. They're AirPods. Uh, okay, so one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to elevate your Seder. We're trying to make the Seder a memorable experience. We're trying to make the Seder an opportunity to really connect with your family and lift them all spiritually. The word Seder, and this is the first of the 10 tips, is the idea of structure. If you want to be able to capture anything in your life, uh, you want to be able to, uh, hello Shoshana, welcome. If you want to be able to achieve any goal, you've got to have a structure. You can't just go into and go, oh, let's just have a schmooze about the exodus. It needs to be structured. It needs to be guided. There needs to be steps. And that is what the Seder, which means order, is all about. Same thing when we pray, by the way. The word Seder is related to the word Sidur. It's the same Samech Dalad Reish, which means structure or order. And that's what we're going to do. We have 15 guided steps to the Seder. Um, and the number 15, this is the uh, second idea for you to share, um, is very significant in Judaism because number one, there were 15 steps leading to the temple where the Levites used to stand and sing songs. Okay. Um, there are 15 different chapters of Psalms, beginning with the words Shir Lama'alot, which means a song of ascent. And there are 15 days are required every month until the moon grows into a full moon. Okay, 15 generations from Moses to Solomon and Shlomo HaMelech was the one who built the temple, right? 15 stanzas in the Dayenu, in that special song that we sing at the Seder. Excuse me, die, die, you know, die, die, you know. it's enough, it's enough. People are thinking it's enough. I want to eat, it's enough. Now, it's enough means this would have been enough. We'll talk about gratitude when we get to it. So 15 stanzas in the Diana, which describe the steps taken from leading, leaving Egypt until we build a life in the land of Israel. And what's the common denominator of all these things associated with 15? The 15 steps leading up to the temple. 15 days are required each month until the moon grows into a full moon. 15 stanzas in the Diana, which describes the steps taken from leaving Egypt until building a life in Israel. The common denominator of these things, of Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel, taught 15 guided steps that are built one upon the other like rungs in a ladder, enabling us to move from one spiritual state to the next until we get to the 15th step, which is called Nirza. The word Nirza is in the passive form, suggesting that we have attained a feeling of freedom and holiness. The first 14 steps 
we sing that in the beginning. Okay, hello, Azmi, hello, Raquel. Welcome, everyone. The first 14 steps are all verbs. Do this, do that. But the 15th step is where you yourself have been transformed into this being that has now been liberated from Egypt. And our sages therefore gave us these 15 steps to give us a structure, to give us an order, to help us internalize some of the major lessons and messages of the Exodus story. Uh, all year long, by the way, we remember the Exodus. And here's the third insight. Once a year, we relive it. What is so important? I mean, we are not the only people to have been enslaved and subsequently emancipated from enslavement. We know that our African uh, American brothers and sisters were enslaved here in the United States. They don't sit down and do a whole Seder every year. There, there are other ethnicities and minority groups, unfortunately, have been uh, enslaved. And nobody has, I mean, almost an obsession with constantly invoking the idea that we were once slaves and subsequently emancipated. And I'd like to share something I heard from Rabbi Israel Meir Lau, the former chief rabbi of the state of Israel, that helps to answer this question. And it's a story that I think you can share at your own Seder. Now, it's a little creative and requires a bit of your imagination. And the story is told of an Olympia airline plane, which lands in Athens, Greece. It's going to require a little imagination, I said. And a very old man steps off the plane. He's none other than Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, who's now a very old man, having been away from his home for hundreds of years. He steps off the plane. And a Greek porter, a young Greek porter, at the terminal runs over to him to offer him some help. <clears throat> May I take your bag, asks the porter. And the old Socrates looks at the young man, and he's confused, and he says, what language are you speaking? And he says, Greek. He says, Greek, why are you not speaking our classical Greek, asks Socrates. I mean, the porter starts chuckling. He says, this is the way we speak to Greek today. We, you know, I studied a little classic Greek in university, but nobody speaks it anymore. And the old man then leaves the airport to visit his homeland, and to his utter dismay, he sees nothing familiar. He looks for the usual Greek idols, which used to line the streets of Athens, of Hercules, of Zeus, but instead he sees this Greek Orthodox church, a completely different religion. He hears people speaking, but no one speaking his classic Greek language. He has nothing in common with these people, just geography. Another plane lands, this time in Rome, Italy. Another old man of great descent, this one Roman descent, steps off the plane. His name is Julius Caesar. A young Italian porter runs up to greet the old man. Can I help you with your bag? And Caesar asks, what language are you speaking? And the porter says, Italian. Italian, why are you not speaking Latin? a classic and traditional language of our people. And the young man chuckled, no one speaks Latin anymore. Maybe some people study it in the universities, but now we speak Italian. The old man asks to be taken to his hometown, to the legendary city of Pompeii, but he sees that no one actually lives there anymore. And like his beloved Colosseum, where he used to sit with thousands of his countrymen, it's now just a museum for tourists. He learns that Rome is no longer an empire ruling of all over other countries, but it's just another city in a larger country called Italy. The Rome of today is not the Roman Empire of yesterday. One last plane, 
descends Elal Airlines, lands in Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, Israel. A very old man, really old, who never before visited Israel in his life, walks off the plane. An Israeli porter climbs up the stairs, greets the old man, and says to him in Hebrew, Shalom Aleichem. And the old man answers, Aleichem Shalom. Same language. Young Israeli porter asks the man, who are you? And he says, I'm Moshe. Moshe, the son of Amram, I was never before here in Israel. I died in Moab in the east bank of the Jordan River after leading my people in the wilderness for 40 years, but I know that this is the land of my people. What is your name? Asks the porter. Moshe. The porter answers. My name is also Moshe. We have the same name. You know, I was born in Egypt, the old man tells him, where are you from? And the young porter, the Israeli, says, I was born in Georgia, which used to be part of Russia, but now I live here in Israel. Can I take your suitcase? And the old man thinks to himself, my suitcase, oh my God, I just forgot. You reminded me, I forgot to bring with me my tefillin. Do you know what tefillin are? And the porter rolls up his sleeve and shows him the seven marks on his arm from the tefillin that he had just put on that morning. My tefillin are right here in my locker, the porter says. I'll go get them for you. You have the tefillin that I gave the Jewish people from God over 3,000 years ago. Do you know what's written in the tefillin? And the porter looks up and he says, of course, the Shema. And the old man thinks to himself, the Shema, which had been revealed to him thousands of years earlier at Sinai. You think about it. Despite the fact that so many people ruled over our people. By the way, I love that story. And I apologize to those of you who may have come on on Monday and heard this story before. I thought it was bare. It was worth repeating. Because despite the fact that so many ruled over our people, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, those empires have vanished and the Jewish people remain. And we believe that the Jewish people survived the Greeks and the Romans, and that we still give our children Jewish names, that we can continue to still don tefillin and say the Shema because of hashgacha, divine providence, because we believe that God involves himself in history and somehow ensures the continuity and survival of the Jewish people. And that's the first theme. It's actually the third insight I have for you already. But it's one of the fundamental themes of the Exodus and of our Seder to impress upon ourselves our belief, not only a God of creation who created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, but a God of history, a God that cares and therefore continues to intervene in the affairs of man. A God who not only created the world, but when he saw his people being oppressed, came to their rescue. And that, my friends, is the idea behind and the message behind the mitzvah of eating matzah on the night of the Seder and staying away from chametz, which is this unleavened bread and anything containing chametz during the entire holiday of Passover. What is the reason the Torah gives us for eating chametz? Ki bechipazon because in haste you left Egypt. The Jewish people left in such a rush that the bread that they were baking did not have enough time to rise. And you ask yourself, who cares? What does it matter if we left in a haste, we took our own sweet time? And Hirsch, a great German Jewish philosopher, wrote 
that the fact that we left in a rush demonstrates that this was not some kind of revolution, some kind of uprising against the oppressive Pharaoh regime, but Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, was something that God orchestrated from beginning to end. Why else would the Jewish people be baking bread when they should have been leaving Egypt? If they were really in control of this event, then they should have known exactly when they were going to go. The fact that they didn't, they were like children doing whatever they were doing. God said, come on, drop the bread. We got to go. And that's what the matzah comes to symbolize, our belief that God is behind events in history. Chametz represents just the opposite. It's a certain attitude of arrogance, and that's why matzah is flat, because it's humble, represents humility to see God and not just yourself in everything that's happening in life. And chametz, leavened bread, is just the opposite, representing the bloated ego of an individual who cannot get out of himself and can only see him or herself in things that happen in life. That, my friends, is why we make such a big deal of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of the Exodus, why we have so many references to it in our prayers, when we recite grace after meals, and we say the Shema, and we observe Shabbat, the Torah says we do it to remember the Exodus. And on top of all this, we reenact the Exodus at the night of the Seder. Now, one other idea, number four, is our focus on ethical justice and sensitivity. Rav wrote that the other reason why the Exodus looms so large is that whenever the Torah wishes to impress upon us, he says, the mitzvah of having compassion and sympathy for the plight of the oppressed, it reminds us of how we began as slaves in Egypt. The most defensive, defenseless elements of our society are usually slaves and strangers and widows and orphans. And the Torah repeatedly enjoins us to love the stranger. It says it 36 times in the Torah. It keeps saying, remember that you are a slave. <clears throat> the stranger in particular, says Rav Salvechik, personifies the helpless person who has no family or friends to intercede. And therefore, if you do something to take advantage of the insecurity and the vulnerability of a, of a widow, orphan, or, or stranger, someone who converts, who comes in from the outside, you're doing something really, really awful as far as the Torah is concerned. And God personally gets angry at such an individual. And that, to me, explains how there are always Jews at, there are always Jews at the forefront of every civil rights and human rights movement. If you see those famous uh, videos or pictures of, of the great and late uh, Dr. Martin Luther King marching in Selma, Alabama, who is standing next to him? Rabbis, Rabbi Joshua Abram Heschel holding a Sefer Torah. And, and, and it's, it's a common practice for Jews to feel bad, to be sympathetic to the plight of the poor. And Rav Salvechik says, here's where it comes from. Because that's how we started as enslaved people. You know, I love to talk about my father, who should live and be well. My dad, thank God, became a very, perhaps the most successful immigration attorney in the country. He's represented in his life some of the most important individuals and celebrities and just big names. But at the end of the day, he is from Olive in Pennsylvania. Yes, my dad, who he really is. My dad comes from this little hick town in Pennsylvania called Oliphant. And that's just what formed him. 
because the way you start out is often the way you carry on. And by the way, those are the good people. Those are the people who don't lose a sense of who they truly are, the individuals who remember their modest past, because I've met a lot of other very successful, also very wealthy people who come from modest backgrounds, but the money changed them. And all of a sudden, they take on a different persona. We don't change. We keep our modest upbringing, and that is enslavement, and that propels us. Just like anyone who experienced trauma in their youth will be that much more sensitive to seeing that trauma experienced by other people. And we have to be sensitive to the plight of the oppressed. And that's what we do as Jews and Rav Salvechik teaches that it's almost in our DNA because we started out as an enslaved people. You can share that at your Haggadah as well. Let's get into the actual, some of the rituals of the Seder itself. You know that we have a lot of four, the theme of four rings very uh, loud at the Seder. Four cups of wine representing the four expressions of redemption from the Torah. Uh, wine also helps alter the state so we can see ourselves as though we were slaves and then subsequently redeemed. We're supposed to do that. That's not always easy in modernity when we have everything we need and we don't, we don't feel such a lacking. And we're supposed to feel on the night of the Seder like we were slaves and that God had just taken us out. And the wine, you know, it helps us, it alters our state a little. It's a good thing. Not to get drunk, but to drink a little to help us imagine as though we were slaves. It's also the drink of kings, which is why we lean. When we drink the four cups of wine, make sure to lean to the left. Now, here's another insight for your Seder. If you don't know the answer to a question, uh, someone asks you, hey, you listen to Rabbi Wild's podcast, the Wild's cast. You've been going to MG classes and events. You must know so much. Tell me, why do we break the, the matzah into two? Why do we dip the karpas in the water? And you don't know the answer. Here's an answer you can give to virtually every question you're asked. You ready? To get the children to ask. To get the children to ask. Because the night of the Seder really is a night of education. And when I say children, I don't just mean kids, because we're all children. We're all looking to grow. And that's one of the most important attitudes that we have as Jews. No matter what age we get to, we're always seeking more knowledge and more wisdom. That's what keeps life fresh. That's why. What do we call, what's the highest accolade you can give to someone who's become a great Torah scholar? We say a Talmid Chacham, a student of wisdom. Always remain a student. And that's a good answer for anyone who's a student at the Seder. You don't know the answer, say to get the children to ask so that people will ask a question. And you can do a little improvising at your Seder. Famous story of Salvechik, who remembers as a child when he was like six or seven in Poland, that his grandfather, the famed Reb Chaim Salvechik, showed up at his Seder wearing a pot on his head. And the little Reb Salvechik, I mean, he was Yosef Bear, Joseph, you know, giggled, Zaini. You have a pot on your head. It looks so funny. Why are you? Oh, you pot. Oh, because tonight, my grandson, tonight is different from all the other nights. And some people wear costumes and some people just shake it up and do something different and weird at the Seder. A lot of really interesting ideas. Another idea, I think we're up to like five or six. I'm going to pass 10. Don't worry. You'll get your money's worth. Um, the next concept is... Um, is the concept of freedom. 
Okay, we make a big deal and, and about freedom, but what does it really mean to be free? You see, the American concept of freedom is to be free to do whatever you want to do. And that's great because we wanna live in a country that will allow us to decide how to express our freedom. But how does a Jew express his or her freedom? And you know how we do this, by giving. We express our freedom in two ways, I should say. Number one is giving, and number two is the rest of the rules and laws of the Torah. Let me start with giving. Famous story, Rav Chaim Salavechik, the rabbi who showed up with a pot on his head to his grandson, Rabbi Joseph B. Salavechik Seder. And this is an amazing story. It's a very famous story of somebody who once came to Rav Chaim Salavechik and asked a very strange question. He said, Rabbi, can you use milk on the night of the Seder instead of wine to fulfill the mitzvah of Arba Kosos of four cups of wine? Can you do this? By the way, this is such an honor. My dear friend, Judy Kaftal, who I had seders with as a boy for many years in Grossinger's uh, with her amazing father, she lived be well, uh, dear, dear friend, uh, Mr. Bravman. Uh, it should be a chakash of Judy, to you and your entire family, and to everyone, to all of Klai Yisrael. So Rav Chaim asked this beautiful, was asked this beautiful question, weird question, I should say, milk. Can you use milk to satisfy the requirement? And Rav Chaim said, you can't. You need to use wine or grape juice. But he brought the gentleman into his study and he gave him a donation so his family could afford to have some wine. And his wife noticed that the amount of money he gave the poor man was a substantial amount of money, much more than wine. And his wife asked, I don't understand. He asked if he could use milk instead of wine. So I understand you gave him some money for wine, but you gave him a lot more. And famously, Rav Chaim answered, if somebody who's religious asks a question like that, it must mean that he also doesn't have chicken or fish or just proper food for the Seder. So I gave him enough money for the entire family for all of Passover. And that is one way that Jews express freedom. We have a, also a famous line in the Haggadah where we say, which means that we get up in the Halach Manya in the very beginning of the Seder and we say, anyone who would like to come and join us for the Seder, let them come and partake. And Rav Salvejic asks the question, what kind of invitation is this? You've already begun your Seder. Okay, I imagine it's Wednesday now that most people have already, most people already know who's coming to the Seder is, and it'll maybe the next day or two. But you don't get up like a big shot in the middle of the Seder, open up the door and yell out the window, anybody want to join us? That sounds very insincere as far as an invitation goes. And Rav Salvechik says that the Halachmanya, where we say, Kol anybody wants to join us, it's not a real invitation. What it is, he said, is a demonstration of what a Jew does with their freedom. What a Jew does with their freedom is we share our bounty with those less fortunate. And that's why there's a mitzvah called Ma'utchitim. Everybody, when you sell your chametz as a custom, to give a check to whoever the rabbi that you are selling your chametz through, not for the rabbi, for poor people in the community. The rabbi distributes it. And we share every year, if anybody would like to make a donation, you can go into the Jewish Center website. Um, and my dear friend, Rabbi Yossi Levine, who's the rabbi of the Jewish Center, distributes that money. It's in the Leo Young Memorial Fund. And he distributes that money to poor people who need money to be able to, 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 to afford matzah, and, and, and have a meal and have wine for the four cups. We take care of each other. That's the first thing a Jew does with their freedom. 
The second concept of freedom is a little counterintuitive. Because what happened when we left Egypt? We left all these rules and laws, and a slave has no freedom over their life under the pharaohs. And we took now a new life under God's laws. It wasn't too long after we were redeemed from Egypt that the Jews stood at Sinai to receive the Torah, where they got the Ten Commandments, and then over the next 40 years, another 603. 603 command, 613, excuse me, commandments, lots of rules and regulations, lots of no-nos, lots of yes-yeses, 248 positive commands, 365 negative commands. How can you say, a lot of people have always asked me, that we were freed from Egypt only to follow more rules and more laws and more obligations from the Torah? How is that freedom? But to answer this question, I want you to imagine yourself right now playing soccer on a rooftop. Even if you're not a big soccer player, imagine yourself playing soccer on a rooftop and there are no fences or gates around the field on a roof. What happens every time you kick that ball and you think the ball can go over the roof? Are you free? You see, boundaries are things that free us. And any parent knows this, that as much as a child wants freedom, the child also craves discipline and boundaries. Because without boundaries, without, with just being told you're, you're free, do whatever you want, that doesn't necessarily make anyone's life happier. It opens up opportunities. But then you have to choose what boundaries you want to have in your life. Because if you don't have boundaries and you're just free, and the whole world is your oyster, as they say, then nothing becomes valuable and meaningful. The Torah refers to the Ten Commandments as charut al-haluchot, engraved on the stones. The Ten Commandments had God's handwriting, if you will, etched into the stones. And the sages of the Talmud teach, do not read the word as charut, engraved, but charut, which means freedom. Because the Torah and the mitzvot are those rules and laws, and yes, obligations, that give us a path to free us, to live our lives more in line with our higher selves. You see, each of us is a physical and spiritual part. We have a body and we have a soul. And if we just say we're free to do anything the body wants, the soul remains imprisoned. But if the body is given some rules and regulations, some do's and some don'ts, then the soul can live as free. The Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim. The word Mitzrayim is not just a place on the map. It's not just a geographical locale on the map somewhere in the Middle East. It means Mitzar, narrow. When you're in narrow straits, what keeps you confined? What's your Mitzrayim? And how are you going to redeem yourself from your Egypt? How can the Torah help us free ourselves to be our true and our best selves? And the only way we can be our true and our best selves is if we have some, we have a path. We follow a path in life. Just think about going in a big forest and there's no path and you can go anywhere. You're going nowhere. There needs to be a path. The Torah gives us a path. It tells us to follow this 
idea and stay away from this idea. This activity is a good activity. It's a good habit for you to cultivate. This is a bad activity for you to cultivate. Those are the boundaries that we want. Pharaoh gave us lots of rules and strictures and laws, but they were not to bring out the best. They were just simply to exploit us for human capital so he could build his cities of Pitom and Ramses. God freed us from Pharaoh and said, I want you to work for me. Because when you have a job working for God, ultimately the person who benefits the most, not God, it's yourself. God doesn't need us to glorify him. God wants the best possible life for us. So he gives us the Torah with these rules and restrictions because he understands as our creator what will best facilitate our spiritual growth and our happiness and our well-being. Now, I want to share some other ideas. We're almost done here. I think we're up to like eight or nine, but that's okay. It's already one o'clock. We got a little more. I want to share a couple of ideas about the four sons. Oh my gosh, the four sons are so important in Judaism. You've got the wicked son and the wise son and the son that can't even answer and then the son who's simple. I didn't, I didn't do them in the right order. Uh, uh, Eddie Zarabi, how are you, my friend? Hope you're enjoying this. Um, so uh, you've got the wise son, the rebellious son, the simple son, and the son who cannot even ask. Now, they seem to represent four different types of Jews, not just at the Seder table. And they're not just sons or children. They're really different types of Jews. You have people with more of a background, people with less of a background. Some people are very anti, like the rebellious son. Some people are really simple and they just want to follow what you tell them to do. Life is black and white. And some are just really out of it. They just don't even know enough to be able to ask. And the Haggadah is telling us that you have to engage everyone. Judaism is not simply for the Chacham. It's not for just the Russia to answer his questions and put him down. It's not, it's for everyone. And there's no one answer that fits all. And the Baal Haggadah, the sages of the Gadah, gave different answers. A different verse from the Torah to ask to answer to each question. And even the child who didn't even know enough to ask. Okay, the She'eno Yodeli Shol. What does the Baal Haggadah say? At You have to open his mouth. You have to engage him. He's sitting there at the Seder. He's totally checked out because he's so unfortunately uneducated that he or she doesn't even know enough to ask a question. So what do you have to do? You got to turn to him. What's your name? Who are you? What's your background? Let me, let's talk a little. Find something in their life that relates to Judaism. This is what it means to do outreach. The Seder is for outreach. And the most important thing is that they showed up. The late and great Lubavitch Rebbe coined the term the fifth son. Who was the fifth son? That's the son who didn't even make it to the Seder. Because Judaism means so little to such an individual that coming to the Seder, that at least the others are there. Even the son that mocks, at least he came and he's ready to be engaged. And this is a very important um, idea that's echoed in the Tanchuma, an important Midrashic source, that when God gave the Torah at Sinai, it says, Moshe God spoke, that Moses spoke and God answered with a voice when he gave the Torah. What does it mean God answered with a voice? It means that God came to each and every Jew according to their own capacity. And you know, if God made sure that at Sinai, every Jew, man, woman, and child could understand the Torah, 
then it's our responsibility to make sure that everyone is included in our Judaism at the Seder and all year long. And that's why the Haggadah has four different children recognizing four different parent-child dialogues to teach how the Torah recognizes different types of Jews and different types of questions. By the way, and I shared this this morning on my WhatsApp chat, never understood never understood the uh, answer we give to the Russia, for the wicked, rebellious son. We say, shinav. we say, blunt his teeth. Very difficult. What does that mean? You like, hit him? So I saw this in Shlomo Karbach's Haggadah. He quoted the Belzer Rebbe, great Hasidic master, said something very, very powerful. What is the Hebrew word, Russia? It's made up of three Hebrew letters, Resh, Shin, Ayin. And if you look at the outer two letters of the word, the Resh and the Ayin, they spell Ra, which means bad or evil. And in the middle is the Shin. What does it mean, Hakeat Shinav, that the way you're supposed to react to the wicked or rebellious son's question is by blunting his teeth? It doesn't literally mean you got to hit him. It means you have to pull out or knock out the Shin. Hakeat Shinav, Shinaim are teeth. But the Shin, is what's caught in between the resh and the ayin. So hakeat shinav, you need to neck the shin out of him. Well, that sounds funny. You need to knock the shin out of the ra because maybe what we see is just what's on the outside, the resh and the ayin, which makes up evil or bad. But deep down, even within someone that seems so cynical and negative about their Judaism is a shin, is something beautiful. And it's our job to be able to help pull away all of the klipot, all of the coverings and the schmutz that's developed on top of a layer upon layer and find what is holy and what is beautiful, the divine spark that exists within each and every Jew. And one last interpretation of the four sons is that they may not only be representing four different types of Jews in the community, but perhaps they're also representing one person going through four stages of their life. Think about it. We all start out as infants. We don't even have enough to ask. We're speechless. Children, they can't even speak when they're born for the first couple of months. Ooh, ah, goo, ga. Right? We can't even ask. And then the child starts speaking. But their outlook on life is very simple and black and white. I remember when our kids are little, they watch a movie. Every question, is he good? Is he bad? And I was trying to show, well, he's got a little good, he's got a little bad. The concept of gray is unknown for a small child. Life is simple. That's stage two. We go from Sheino your daily show, not even being able to speak, to life is black and white. Then the child grows up and goes through a period of adolescence. I have adolescence, and I can tell you, it's not an easy time for a young man or woman where everything gets challenged. But hopefully they are able to emerge from the period of adolescence, seeking questions and seeking answers, and eventually become a great Talmud Chacham, a great, great Torah scholar. There's actually a beautiful story. I'll share the story. You can share this at the Seder. Rav Eisel Kharif of Slonim. It's a great rabbi who was looking to marry off his daughter. Rabbi lived in the 1800s in Poland. And he, of course, wanted his daughter to meet someone very learned in Torah. So he traveled to the greatest yeshiva of the time, 
which was like the Harvard of yeshivas, the famous yeshiva of Elazhin, where the best and brightest Talmudic students were enrolled. And when he got to the yeshiva, he told the head of the yeshiva he would present a very involved Talmudic question. And anyone who could answer the question could receive his daughter's hand in marriage. So Rav Eisel posed the question, which quickly made its way around the yeshiva. The question was so difficult, no one could answer it right away. He stipulated he would give everyone 24 hours. And the 24 hours came and went, and no one had an answer. So Rav Eisel got onto his coach and proceeded back home. Suddenly, the coach driver hears a voice, stop, stop. And they see one of the yeshiva bachers, one of the yeshiva students is running. And looking behind them, they see he's running, desperately trying to catch up with the coach, and the driver starts slowing down. Revisal says, no, he had the 24 hours, it's too late. And the coach driver starts pleading with Revisal, come on, look at him, he wants to catch up. Fine, they stop the coach. And the rabbi looks down at the young man, and he's all perspired, and he's, he says, look, I'm sorry, it's too late to be considered for my daughter's hand in marriage. The day has already passed. And the student says, I know, I know. But I just want to know, what's the answer to the question? And the rabbi was so impressed with the student's inquisitiveness. He knew he couldn't marry his daughter at this point. But he wanted to know the answer to the question. And of course, you know, where this is going, he, that's exactly the kind of student he wanted for his daughter. Not just someone who was brilliant intellectually, but someone who cared enough to run a little to get the answer. Four sons teach us how much Judaism values our questions, but our tradition also wants us to run and search for answers. How much do we try to find the answers to our life's questions? How far are we willing to go? How fast are we willing to run to learn and to grow in our Judaism? Pesach is a holiday that requires us to stretch ourselves, to learn a little more, inspiring us never to be content with where we are now, but to keep learning and acquiring greater knowledge and wisdom. When we stop learning, we stop growing. Our Judaism becomes stale. It's all about running after knowledge and wisdom. That is a very important lesson. I want to conclude with one last, the 10th insight for your Seder. You'll have to excuse me if I didn't really um, uh, count down exactly. But last is gratitude. Gratitude is a theme running throughout the Seder expressed through the Hallel. We say these paragraphs of praise. Uh, it gets actually split up by Brakata Mazon, the grace after meals we eat in the middle of Hallel. And then we get right back after the dinner is over into the Hallel. And we have the famous song, Dayenu, which means it would have been enough. And I always make the joke at my Seder, I made it before. Dayenu, it's enough with the talking. Let's just sit down and eat. I'm hungry. But Dayenu, is really breaking apart the different things and blessings that God has given to us in our lives. It would have been enough if God redeemed us from Egypt and not brought us to Sinai. It would have been enough if God brought us to Sinai but not given us the Torah. It would have been enough if God gave us the Torah but didn't bring us into the land of Israel. Now, of course, we want it all. We want the whole package. We want as many blessings from God as we can get. But in order to express proper gratitude, you need to break it down. I'll quote my good friend, Rabbi Ezra Cohen, who loves to say this. When you go to someone's home and after COVID is over and you start getting invited for meals again, oh, and you want to thank someone for the beautiful dinner they just treated you to, a Shabbat meal perhaps, you don't just say thanks for having me. You say, you know what? The chicken, the main course was delicious. The casserole 
the dessert, the, the cake that you baked. Can you give me the recipe? When you get specific, when you express gratitude, it shows that you're really grateful. And it makes the person you're thanking feel like the thank you is not a simple, you know, gratuitous Emily Post etiquette. Go through the motions. But that you really mean it. You really enjoy that part of the meal, whatever it is. You call up and say, I just want to thank you for this specific thing. Gratitude needs to be specific. And also, we have a paragraph in the Haggadah where we talk about Arami Oved Mitzrayma, where we go through our whole history. And the person who wrote the Haggadah, the, the great sages, chose to tell the story um, through the person bringing the mitzvah of Bikurim. Bikurim is the mitzvah. If you live in the land of Israel, you have to take your first fruits in the days of the temple and bring those first fruits to Jerusalem. And there was this whole pomp and circumstance over this little fakakta fruit that you pluck from your tree because the Jewish farmer never took their crops for granted. And when you get that first crop, you have to travel all the way to Shalim and you give it to the Kohen and you declare this whole declaration that's in the, it's actually in the Haggadah that we recite. What are we reciting? What a Jewish farmer would recite in the days of the temple when they got their first fruit. What does it have to do with Passover? It's in the Haggadah, my friends, because the Haggadah is about expressing gratitude for the gifts that we have in our life. And you want to know, and I will end with this. If you are healthy enough to enjoy a Seder, you have a lot to be grateful for. I have a lot to be grateful for. All of us have so much to be grateful for to Hashem. And even though our Seders will continue not to be as large as they have been in years past, but thankfully this year, we couldn't say this last year, we have a vaccine. A lot of people are coming to their Seders vaccinated. A lot of elderly people can now have Seder with at least some of their family members. Not everyone. I have friends having Seders with their children in a garage outside. They want to do it outside or they're masked or they're not masked, but they're all vaccinated so they can be together. Thank God. Express gratitude to Hashem that we made it through this really, really tough year and that we could sit at our Seder and we could say thank you, Hashem, for the blessings that you gave to our forefathers, that you cared enough about us not to simply create us and put us into this world, but to redeem us from Egypt and to bring us to receive the Torah at Sinai and give us something that truly frees us, this Torah. All year round, God cares and loves us and, and expresses that love by giving us a path like any parent gives a path to their child to follow in life. And thank you, Hashem, for giving us that spiritual path. And thank you, God, for giving us the health so we can enjoy this beautiful Seder and be with our families. The Haggadah is all about gratitude, and we need to become more grateful people. And we do that on the night of Haggadah. I want to bless you and your families. You should have what we say in Hebrew, Chag Kasher V'Sameach, a beautiful, uplifting, kosher Passover. It should be a night of redemption, not only recalling the redemption of our ancestors, but asking ourselves how we can continue to be redeemed from whatever enslavement, we, whatever vices or bad habits, whatever Mitzrayim, remember that word means, it means narrow. Whatever narrowness we've confined ourselves to, God should help us redeem ourselves from that narrowness and enslavement and be able to find expansiveness and blessing and continued good health. May Hashem bless you and your families with a Chag Kasher V'Sameach and uh, continue to please join us um, for Lunch and Learn each and every day.
at 12.30, and we've moved some of the lunch and learns to happy hours at 5 p.m. now, and uh, we'll be having classes at night and services every day of the first days of the holiday, uh, Friday night, 6.45, and Saturday morning, 9.30, Sunday morning, 9.30, Monday morning, 9.30. If you'd like the link to sign up, uh, we've got some spots if you'd like to join us for services on any of the first days of Passover. Kevin and Allison are going to be here with me, and we're going to be having beautiful satyrs on the roof and also services every day, as I mentioned. And in the, in the latter days, Rabbi Ezra Cohn is coming to lead services as well. So please sign up for services uh, and join us. And it should be a Chag Kasher V'Sameach. Beautiful, beautiful holiday, my friends. Thank you all for participating and for joining. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.